The Claude 3 model family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective, Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed, and Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Thanks very much for joining us. And if you're not already, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a nice review. Now, in an age when so much of our public discourse seems to openly defy reason, and when the defining values of the post-Enlightenment world we seem to take for granted are increasingly under challenge, this week we're going to talk about the state of our intellectual health as a modern society. And I'm pleased to say that my guest this week is especially well-equipped to talk about this. It's Stephen Pinker. Professor Pinker is one of our foremost public intellectuals and has written extensively in defense of both reason and the Enlightenment, they being subjects of two of his most recent books. In his latest work, Rationality, which the paperback edition is now out, he examines how we as humans use reason, but also how and why we don't. He notes that rationality is under siege from many quarters of society these days with the rise of fake news, conspiracy theories, alternative truths, and a growing campaign to subordinate the idea of reason to the demands of diversity and identity. Professor Pinker is the professor of psychology at Harvard University and has written extensively about language, cognition, theory of mind, and many other topics. Among his other books was a 2011 bestseller, The Better Angels of Our Nature, that argued, in keeping with his strong belief in the power of reason and enlightenment values, that despite our often lurid way of covering the news, violence has declined over centuries of human history. The world is a much secure and safer place than it was. And Professor Stephen Pinker joins me now. Thank you very much indeed for joining me, Professor. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. I want to get into some of those broader contemporary societal questions we face in which reason seems to be under challenge. But you spend a lot of time in the book, which is extremely helpful for those of us who've forgotten our logic and other topics that we learned a long time ago as undergraduates, explaining what reason is, how it works, how we exercise it, and how sometimes we don't. So I thought I'd just start off, if I may, by just asking you a very simple question to, as you do at the start of the book, explain what we mean when we talk about reason and reasoning. I define reason as the use of knowledge to pursue goals. So reason is always in service of a particular goal, and it's a way of using benchmarks of rationality, intellectual tools that indicate how a rational agent ought to reason in order to attain his or her goals. They serve as yardsticks against which we can compare how mortal humans actually do things. So by these normative models, I include logic, how you deduce new true beliefs from existing true beliefs, probability theory, how you assess the likelihood of an event, how to distinguish correlation from causation, game theory, namely how a rational agent should attain his goals in a world of other rational agents trying to attain their goals. The statistical decision theory, that is, how do we trade off false alarms from misses, given that we are not omniscient, we have to make educated guesses about the state of the world. We can say we detect something or not, and we could be wrong in one of two ways. How do we set our criterion? One of the tools of reasoning that I think every educated person should have at their fingertips and many people who've thought about rationality would agree with this, is a simple rule called Bayes' Rule or Bayes' Theorem, named after an 18th century pastor, Thomas Bayes. And it is a way of calibrating your degree of belief in a hypothesis according to the strength of the evidence. Calling it a theorem makes it sound really scary, but it's actually pretty intuitive, which is simply that 
The degree to which you believe something, let's say on a scale of you know zero to 100 or zero to one, should depend on how credible the idea was in the first place, the prior probability. And in fact, that's a part of Bayes' theorem that's actually escaped from probability and statistics and has entered our everyday conversation. When you say, those aren't my priors, or what are your priors on that? The term priors comes from Bayes' theorem. So that's the first term. You multiply that by how likely the evidence is to have occurred if the hypothesis is true, and you just divide it by how common the evidence is across the board, whether the hypothesis is true or not. So for example, if you get a positive test result for a disease and the test isn't perfect, no test is perfect, there's some false positives, how likely are you to have the disease if you get a positive test result? Now, people often get this wrong, including doctors. So for example, let's say there's a disease that occurs in 1% uh, of the population and you've got a test with a 10% false alarm rate. If you have a positive result, does it mean you probably have the disease? And the answer is it means you probably don't have the disease because so few people have the disease in the first place that most of the positives are probably false positives. That's an example of application of uh, Bayes' rule. People are famously ignorant of it, or at least they tend to go just with the stereotypes of what it is like if the hypothesis is true without taking into account how likely it was in the first place. This is one of the famous results from Daniel Kahneman, who wrote the bestseller, Thinking Fast and Slow, and won a Nobel Prize with Amos Tversky for this work, that we tend to think in stereotypes and we forget to calibrate by the base rate. That is how likely something is a priori. Yeah, and you give uh, Pressbinger many other of these examples, which are always fascinating, and again, sort of game theories. And there's the famous one, uh, the Monty Hall, I think it is, game show, sort of a real life example of the game show contestant who is given three boxes and he's told that one contains a car and two contain goats and he has to pick one. And when he does, then the game show host then opens one of the boxes, it turns out to be a goat, and then he then has a choice. And as you point out in the book, very amusingly, Many, many, many mathematicians got wrong what the, the next move should be on the part of the game show contestant, which is, of course, that he should actually change his choice. What's interesting about these and the ones you've just given there of the false positives is that people who think of themselves and are widely thought of as very smart can be and are frequently tripped up in this reasoning process. So some of us like to think of the reason as we're all capable of reasoning, but it does seem as though actually maybe reasoning is more of a skill that needs to be sharpened, like physical fitness or something like that. Is that the way we should see it? That we have the potential for high quality reasoning, but many of us even people who are quite smart actually often fall short of it. What's the explanation for that? Yes, that's absolutely right that in general people who are smarter are less likely to fall prey to these fallacies and errors, but they're certainly not immune. And the Monty Hall problem is a fine example because one of the world's most brilliant mathematicians fell for it and almost refused to believe the explanation was pointed out to him before finally agreeing to it. So yes, I reject the glib conclusion that we're just an irrational species. I think of this as the Mr. Spock conclusion, humans are irrational. That can't be right because we're the ones who set the standards for rationality against which we compare humans and say, well, look at this error. Well, how do we know it's an error? We must be rational enough to have figured out the right answer. The way I think of it is rather that our irrationality tends to be concrete. It's tied to the here and now. It's mixed in with our subject matter knowledge. We're okay at assessing probabilities when we can actually count up the number of instances and get an intuitive feel for what proportion of opportunities actually results in a particular outcome. But when we're fed abstractions, when we're given statistics, when we're given formulas, these are not at all intuitive. We did not evolve in a world that had mathematical formulas or reliable government data sets on safety, on crime. 
And so we tend to go with our immediate experience. If we see something in the news, if the image sticks in memory, we think it's likely. If we read about someone getting eaten by a shark on a beach, we think that swimming is unsafe. If we read about a school shooting, if we read about a terrorist attack, that tends to lodge in memory and affect our sense of risk and danger, as opposed to actually looking up the data, which show that you're very unlikely to be killed by a terrorist. You're much more likely to be killed in road rage, a jealous spouse, a barroom brawl, all of those things that don't make the headlines. So I think there's a role for education in teaching kids these formulas, these rules. It isn't natural to think of a formula like P implies Q, therefore not Q implies not P, where you can plug in anything in the P and the Q, or formula for probability. They're extraordinarily useful because it means that you don't have to rely on your own autobiographical experience. You can learn from the accumulated wisdom of our entire civilization. We like to think as a species that we are on a sort of steady path towards improving the quality of life, and certainly by any measure for the vast majority of people in the world, we are more prosperous, safer, less violent, the sort of things that you've written about in your other books. But is that the right way also to think about our reasoning capacity? Are humans over time becoming more rational? Or is this something that just moves in kind of random walk kind of direction? I would agree with the first part if you erase the word steady, because life has definitely gotten better over the last couple of centuries, over the last few decades, but not in a steady straight line or even constantly ascending curve. There are reversals, there are sickening lurches. We're living through one of these reversals now in war and peace because of Putin's invasion in uh, Ukraine. And over the trajectory of the post-World War II period in which war deaths have gone down and number of wars have gone down, but not steadily. We underwent bulges and bursts like the Vietnam War, the Iran-Iraq War, the Syrian Civil War, where the curve goes in the wrong direction for a while. And then it kind of resumes its downward slope. And it's not guaranteed to do that. It depends very much on what we do. And that's true for all of the curves on progress that I've documented. Now, in the case of rationality, the way I often think of it is that we're seeing a rise in the inequality in rationality. People talk a lot about inequality of income and wealth, but there's also a lot of inequality in rationality. Because at the high end, we've never been more rational. We have more and more tools and data-driven approaches to figuring out what we want. Of course, in biomedical research, we invented a whole new class of vaccines for COVID in an amazingly short amount of time. We are pushing back frontiers in space exploration, in construction, in computing. And we also are applying rationality to domains of everyday life that used to be just a matter of hunches and guesswork. An obvious example is Moneyball in sports. That is, instead of just relying on the wisdom of old managers and coaches, every major league team now has a statistician that sees whether it really does make sense to have a sacrifice bunt. On average, does that make you worse off? In policing, we have data-driven policing, which partly accounts for the great American crime decline of the 1990s and early 2000s. We've got evidence-based medicine. More and more, we're using analytics and data and formulas to improve on human reasoning at the top end. At the bottom end, though, of course, we're seeing conspiracy theories and fake news and medical quackery and paranormal woo-woo. It's not clear that those have gotten worse, but they certainly haven't gotten better. Talk briefly about artificial intelligence. How should we view that? Is that essentially artificial reasoning? I mean, it is the 
drawing of inferences from large quantities of data, which essentially is how the human mind works. Can that be seen in the same way as human reasoning? What do you think are the possibilities of artificial intelligence in that respect? The, the possibilities are enormous, but I actually don't think that current artificial intelligence, for all its successes in Google Translate and face recognition and so on, they actually don't really operate the way human intelligence does. They capitalize on the fact that the internet has amassed mind-boggling amounts of data and these algorithms try to squeeze statistical patterns out of the data. And they've often done a surprisingly good job, although as anyone who uses Siri can attest, they also make astoundingly stupid blunders. What they don't do that much yet, and where it differs from humans is, you know, no human child has heard a trillion sentences, whereas the AI algorithms are fed with a trillion sentences. But humans do use a common sense understanding of the world. We have a mental model. We know that the world is populated by things and they obey the law of gravity and they're people and people have beliefs and desires and there are places. Currently fashionable AI doesn't do that. It kind of does a shortcut by just squeezing patterns out of data. Now, I think that AI of the future, bumping up against the limitations of the so-called deep learning approach, which is the one that's dominant now, We'll have to rediscover the way humans think, which is we don't just soak up patterns, but we have ideas about the world. We know that there are, are things and people. Then I think that's going to be the next frontier of artificial intelligence. Back to humans. Is a religious belief irrational? Mostly, yeah. And by the admission of religious believers, these are beliefs that you hold by faith, not by reason, argument, and, and evidence. There's no evidence for miracles. There's no evidence for invisible, undetectable minds, spirits, ghosts, gods, etc. And people who hold those beliefs don't even claim that there is for the most part. There are obviously a lot of incredibly people who consider themselves rationalists who are actually also believers. I agree that there's a seeming contradiction there. But I think part of their argument would be there is still as much knowledge as the human mind has been able to acquire over centuries, millennia. There are still many, many aspects of human life that are inexplicable and indeed, you know, in some ways the actual, you know, the reason for human life, if you can, if you can call it that. And therefore there is a realm beyond human understanding that they ascribe to, as you say, as a matter of faith, they ascribe to the religious sphere. Is that just a question in your view of us not having yet been able to answer some of those fundamental questions about existence and that we will acquire more and more of that intelligence? Or is there something else there in the human mind that leaves space for faith? This is sometimes called the God of the gaps argument, namely whatever current science is not yet explained, you attribute to God. So it's, it's a losing strategy because science will explain more and more things. It used to be that Thunderbolts were considered hurled from the heavens by Zeus, that uh, natural disasters were God punishing humans for their sins. And then we started to understand geology and uh, electricity. Life, of course, used to be the great mystery in need of divine explanation. But then we had Darwin's theory of natural selection. Thinking and knowing and perceiving used to be mysteries that called for some immaterial soul. But more and more neuroscience is explaining how thought and perception and emotion can take place. So I don't think that that's a valid reason for believing in invisible deities, because not only will science advance, there may be some things that science just can't answer simply because we don't have the money, we don't have the time, we can't build big and expensive enough instruments, we might always be ignorant of them. But again, that doesn't mean that the best explanation is a deity, it just means there may be some things that we mortal humans just can't figure out the answers to. We're going to take a short break there, but when we come back, we'll have more with Professor of Psychology at Harvard, Stephen Pinker, on the role of reason and how it can help us to tackle things like fake news. 
conspiracy theories and the various other challenges we face at the moment. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab that unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and portfolio. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. Welcome back. We're talking with Stephen Pinker, Harvard professor of psychology and author of Rationality, a look at the importance of reason in our lives. Move on to some of the current controversies, which you've talked a bit about and the growth of things like fake news and conspiracy theories. Now, I should say one thing I'd be interested in your view on actually is to what extent this is a current sort of phenomenon that conspiracy theories have been around for a very long time. So is fake news, so is fabulism and fiction and people making up stuff. So my first question is, how new is this really? Or, or are we, especially we in the media, do we just tend to sort of overstate it because partly through things like social media? maybe we're exposed to more people who believe in these theories? It's a good question. I don't think we really have a uh, perfectly accurate answer to it, but we do know, as you pointed out in your question, that these have been around a long time. Conspiracy theories like the Jews control the world economy or they sacrifice Christian children to use their blood in making matzah. Various rumors about ethnic minorities have triggered pogroms and deadly riots. Wars have been started on false conspiracy theories. Most journalism in the 19th century was completely fabulous. Talked about discovery of sea monsters and extraterrestrial civilizations and 12-foot-tall humans until journalism got its act together in the 20th century and started to try to impose standards of fact-checking and editing and sourcing. So we love stories. We have not until recently really had means of establishing objective truth, like science, like responsible journalism, like government record-keeping agencies. And so we naturally, especially when it comes to things that are not in our everyday experience, our day-to-day life, we like a good story more than vetted, verified, objective truth. And again, is it the dissemination through social media that's making us more aware of that? Let's put it this way. I think we're in a situation now where what you describe as kind of the sort of journalism getting its act together in the sort of late 19th and 20th century kind of did sort of impose, I suppose, a prevailing fact-based narrative, at least as people saw it. And have we now lost that because those traditional institutions of journalism, like my own one, have to some extent had to compete with this proliferation of wilder sort of fabulism from all the surveys we have is that people have dramatically declining levels of trust in traditional journalism and are much more inclined or open to believing other things. Is it more of a problem now? Because there seems to be so little faith in what used to be the kind of universally accepted purveyors of reliable information. I think you have put your finger on it. None of us is smart enough or wise enough or omniscient enough to know the truth by ourselves. We do pretty well in our everyday lives. Is there milk in the fridge? Well, we open the fridge, we take a look. We're not going to fool ourselves. We're not going to be vulnerable to conspiracy theories about whether there's gas in the car or whether the kids are ready to go to school because our lives depend on it. But when it comes to things that we don't immediately experience, you know, what really happens in Congress and the White House and in corporate boardrooms? What is the cause of fortune and misfortune? Why do bad things happen to good people? What happened 50 years ago, 100 years ago, where we can't see it with our own eyes? We have no choice but to trust institutions, historians and record keepers and scientists and public health experts. And of course, if you don't trust them, and as you point out, trust in institutions has gone down, then people will just reach for the most comforting narrative. And comforting often means it makes my side look good. It makes my enemies look stupid and evil. 
And a lot of what we're seeing now in the outbursts of irrationality is people falling prey to what's sometimes called the my side bias, namely, you believe in what makes your own coalition, your tribe, your religion, your political party look noble, what makes the other side look foolish. And instead of trying to calibrate your beliefs by the best possible evidence, which isn't always going to make your side look good because neither side is angelic. And as trust in universities, in mainstream press, in government agencies goes down, then people will be open to all kinds of crazy beliefs. Now, this is not to say that mainstream media, or that certainly not universities, are themselves infallible. Of course they aren't. But they probably have a better track record simply because they are at least nominally committed to things like evidence, data, open debate, criticism. To the extent they aren't, they are disabling themselves. This is one of my recurring criticisms of my own industry, namely universities, that in canceling controversial speakers, they're sapping their own credibility and they're inviting people to write them off, even when I believe university-based research is the best guide to, to truth. It isn't always, it often is, but universities are corroding their own credibility when they engage in this kind of intellectual repression. Quickly back on the broader question of this sort of tsunami of fake news, or as you describe it very well, the sort of phenomenon we have where people seem to choose the information that suits their priors. Do you have a good sense of how we tackle that? It does seem to be so entrenched and it seems to be contributing to this hyper-partisanship and the incredibly divided nature of society that we have. How do we redress that? It's a formidable challenge and so I don't have an algorithm for solving it, but there are several things that we ought to do. One of them is that the tools of rationality should be part of our school curriculum. As someone once put it, rationality should be the fourth R together with reading, writing, and arithmetic. Kids should know something about probability, about logic, They'd also be exposed to the common flaws of human reasoning that we ought to overcome, like arguing against a straw man instead of a caricature of the opposing side, as opposed to what some has called a steel man. That is, you set up the strongest possible form of the opinion you disagree with, and you try to show what's wrong with that. Arguing from anecdote instead of from data. Arguing from authority, oh, so-and-so has a Nobel Prize, and this is what he thinks. That's an invalid form of argument. So people should be inoculated against these fallacies. They should have, starting in school, media literacy, that is being able to distinguish between the media that at least have some commitment to truth and fact-checking, however imperfect compared to just something that someone said on the internet. But it can't just be in school, because I have to confess this, even though I'm in the education business, I'm a professor, but if it's just a course, students will take the course, they'll cram for the exam, the exam will be over and they'll forget everything they learned from the book. So it can't just be school. It also has to be part of our everyday norms. What does a sensible person get away with? And we have to promote the idea that in debates, in op-eds, in conversation, you shouldn't get away with just citing one anecdote as evidence for a trend. You should be responsible for setting up a strong version of the position you're arguing against instead of a, a straw version. It has to be part of our everyday decency. And that, of course, is not something you can engineer from the top down, but it can happen. There are changes in norms that have never been legislated, but still overcome the culture. I'll just give an example. So when I was a kid, uh, ethnic jokes were common on even on mainstream TV and in sitcoms and variety shows. You could tell jokes about how bumbling and foolish and stupid Polish people were. You couldn't do that now. You can do anything at the cesspools of, of internet discussions. But a mainstream network show could not tell Polish jokes the way they could in the 1960s. So government never passed a law against that, but it's just 
considered de classe, not what decent people do. And we have to each do our part to try to make being rational a part of the rules of everyday conversation and debate and argument. The other thing is that, since I mentioned, you know, none of us is perfectly rational. None of us has been given the truth by God or by angels. We're all human. And even the most rational among us is going to be carried away by human biases like the desire to be right, the desire to be seen as smart, the desire to have one's own party, one's own political ideology be seen as correct. So the only way that we imperfect humans can bumble our way towards the truth is in institutions that have rules for quashing people's biases and try to let the truth emerge from debate, discussion, empirical testing. So in science, we have peer review, we have the demand for data and experiments, in journalism, there's the demand for fact-checking, there are editors, there's a reputation of the outlet that has to be maintained. In the court system, we have adversarial proceedings, the right to a defense, the presumption of innocence. In liberal democracy, we have separation of powers and checks and balances. All of these are ways of pushing back against human irrationality by rules that don't favor any one of us, but that we all agreed to abide by, and the whole community following these rules can wander its way toward the truth. So institutions have to be safeguarded and they have to constantly protect their own credibility by not getting carried away by politicization, by correcting their own errors, by confessing to their own fallibility and other methods. I'm putting the cart before the horse here. This question should have come first. Just very briefly, what explains this collapse in trust in traditional institutions? You've described the media, universities, government information. That does seem to be over the last 20, 30 years a dramatic erosion in the willingness of people to believe what they're told. Very briefly, what's your sense of what explains that? There's no simple answer. I think there are a number of factors. One of them, of course, has been the rise of private media or proprietary media. Instead of everyone watching Walter Cronkite or Huntley and Brinkley in one of the three networks, we now have cable news with obvious partisan bias. We have AM talk radio, where particular political viewpoint is just hammered and fans listen to that and don't listen to the stations on the other side. Of course, we have social media, but it isn't just media. It's also, there's been more residential segregation. People who are symbol-manipulating professionals who have high degree of education, who gravitate to urban areas and university towns. Other people stay in rural and exurban areas, and they're less likely to just rub shoulders in everyday life. There's a decline in institutions that used to bring people together from different social classes, different degrees of education, like political parties, churches, bowling leagues. People are more likely to stay at home, so they're less likely to actually deal with people from the other side of the cultural divide. And there's just kind of arms race on each side to try to demonize the other side that can even be self-fulfilling. Two very quick things I want to talk about. One is one particular area in which I think reason, and you've got, you've talked a bit about this, you've written about it, and in fact, you've got yourself into some debates with some of your own academic colleagues about this, which is in the context of this very contemporary debate we've been having in the last few years about things like critical race theory, about the importance of identity. And the challenge to the idea of reason is that all the ideas you write about in your book and the many ways that are dedicated your life to, and many others too, are themselves a kind of construct 
of social hierarchies in which simply reflect privilege and discrimination and oppression and all of the things that we associate with this ideas of critical race theory. And somehow the, the reason itself, as I say, or the, the way you talk about reason and the way we deploy argument and reason and things like that is frankly is this kind of tool of oppression of the privileged. But it seems such a, an outlandish idea to me and, and to others too. But can you give us a firm rebuttal to that? Am I characterizing it correctly? I mean, what does it mean for the quality of intellectual inquiry? Yeah, I think there are two refutations. One of them is, do you consider that argument that you just made about the use of rationality as a weapon of the privilege? Is what you just said rational? If it isn't, I don't have to believe it because it's, I don't believe irrational things. If it is, then you've actually confessed that rationality is the standard by which we should assess all arguments, including the one you just made. So that's one refutation. You can't argue against reason. As soon as you show up to that debate, you lose because you're arguing. That means you've accepted the canons of rationality, as opposed to, say, threatening someone to believe something or bribing them to believe it. If you're persuading them in the first place, it's too late. You've signed on to reason. The other one is, it is a fallacy. It even has a name, the genetic fallacy. It has nothing to do with genes, but rather of the genesis of an idea that where an idea came from has no bearing on whether it's true or false, or at least it doesn't prove whether it's true or false. True things can come from systems that are filled with people who, in, in retrospect, we judge to be bad, but that doesn't mean that they're false. To take examples that most people making that argument would accept themselves, do they accept that man-made climate change is real? Probably they do, just because people on that side of the political spectrum almost always do. And you can say, well, the people who establish the facts of human-made climate change you know, a lot of them are white and a lot of them are male and a lot of them work for establishment universities. Are you then going to be a climate denier because climate science is, you know, is just to a large extent white and male? Well, they say, no, 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 climate change is real. Well, but then you're saying that it doesn't matter what the race and gender composition of the establishment that established that belief is. My final question relates to your 2011 book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, which, as I said at the beginning, is a sort of a historical analysis, which very convincingly makes the case that despite all our focus focus on war and terrorism and crime that actually humanity lives in much less violence than it does. I know that book and that argument that is often misinterpreted as a kind of a Panglossian view that things are just great and going to get better. But 10 years, 11 years on from that, and especially as we contemplate what seems to be the alarmingly real prospect of nuclear war, might we just look back and say, wow, that was several millennia of wonderful progress, but now we have these astonishing weapons capable literally of kind of wiping ourselves out that maybe so what, as it were, with this, there may be a much greater conflagration to come than anything we've ever, ever conceived of. It is possible. It would be foolish to say it's not possible because it obviously is possible. Since all of history is a matter of probabilities, contingencies, it doesn't unfold according to any kind of plan. It's possible that the overall rate of war and deaths in war have gone down while the damage that could be done by an improbable but possible war has gone up. And that's kind of the situation we've been living under since the end of World War II. Even with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, war deaths this year probably won't come anywhere close to what they were during the Vietnam years, the Korean War years, the 1980s. But still, we're living under the shadow of the possibility of a nuclear catastrophe, which is why I think we should pursue the goal of nuclear reduction and eventually disarmament, the ideal of Reagan and Gorbachev, that nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought, the speech that prematurely won Obama the Nobel Peace Prize, the ideal that has now been set aside but that ought to be pursued of getting rid of these useless but unthinkably destructive weapons. I guess my point was, wasn't part of your argument really, or at least part of the analysis, that 
going back to where we started, that we've become so much safer and so much less violent, partly because of the exercise of more human reasoning, I suppose. And I, I wonder if the same high level, the same advanced human reasoning could land us into a, a nuclear, I mean, again, probabilities, I'm not, I'm not here talking about the specific probabilities of war, but progress of that human reasoning is no guarantor against the fact that we could all kill each other. That is certainly true. And it goes back to the definition of reason from the beginning of the show, that it's the use of knowledge to attain goals. A lot depends on what those goals are. If the goal is more and more destructive weapons, if it is some kind of killer virus, if it's ways of expanding an empire, then reason is going to take us faster in the wrong direction. So reason has to be linked to humane goals, to humanism, to the idea that ultimately what we want to do is allow people life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, as many people as possible. That goal itself does not automatically follow from being rational, but if we're rational in pursuing that goal, that's what makes progress possible. In fact, that's the only thing that makes progress possible. Stephen Pinker, Harvard professor of psychology, author of Rationality, most recently, among other books. Thank you very much indeed for joining for Expression. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week for another exploration of the big issues that are driving our world. Thanks and goodbye. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.